Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, we look at the world of work with Joanna Biggs and all day long, a portrait of Britain at work. And then Stefan Olcock talks about his debut novel, Blood Relatives. Joanna Biggs is an editor at the London Review of Books. She has written for The New Yorker, The Guardian and The Sunday Times. And she's now the author of All Day Long, a portrait of Britain at work. So, Joanna, thank you very much for coming in to talk to me. Oh, no, thank you for having me. Tell me what the idea behind this book is. Well, one thing about work is that we do it all day, every day, for mm-hmm. our whole lives, 100,000 hours, whatever it is, um, but we don't tend to think about it. It's one of those things where we have a drink at the end of the day to forget it. I remember as a child not really knowing what my father did and trying mm-hmm. to ask him and having no notion. I think of things like, um, you see that in the children's book, like the toilet comes to tea, the father who has just a sinister father who comes home and they're all scared of him and no one knows what he does all day. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to look at our everyday lives in a different way and just set down what work was on some level. So each portrait of a person's day has just, you know, how they get to work mm-hmm. and how much coffee they have, so go very small details. But also, the timing of it was trying to think about what happened to the country since 2008, the 2008 financial crash. Mm-hmm. Um, came out just the month before the election and trying to say, look, this is what's happening across the country, this is what people's lives are like, this is how they feel, this is what they feel has happened to them since mm-hmm. 2008. So that was part of it too. And the world of work itself has changed, it's unrecognisable from what that fictional father's job yeah, would have been. Yeah. In fact, before we talk about how the world of work has changed, there's always been this idea that, well, just work itself, employment in that sort of way, would be done away with. That there would be this future where nobody was sort of working. And while a lot of industries are unrecognisable from that time, there's absolutely no danger of work being done away with so far, is there? No, you're referring to the Keynes, the great Keynes, mm-hmm. say, possibly for our Exactly, he says three hours a day, we'd all be working three hours a day. And, of course, we haven't got there. I was, I, I started to worry, I spoke to a lot of people who said how much they loved their jobs. Mm-hmm. And that um, started to worry me, because it felt like just as certain sorts of work were becoming obsolete and it was how Keynes saw things was possible. Mm-hmm. People were clinging on to jobs, clinging on to work for their identity and even, you know, they'd say they love it and you talk to them a bit more and you realise they didn't quite, but they felt like they had to say that, obviously. Mm-hmm. And I don't quite know what's going on there. It's sort of both the paradox and some anxiety that we haven't quite worked through as a society or something, I don't know. <laughs> but also, I mean, we'll talk more closely about that later on, but there are certain aspect areas of work that you talk about in this book where you're forced to love it, right? Yeah, it's like almost a rule that if you don't demonstrate yeah. that you love your job, that's a bad thing. Yeah, exactly. So this is the, this trend towards effective labour, emotional mm. labour. I spoke to some baristas who work at Pratt and um, part of the Pratt code, the way they part of the recruitment process, the whole thing is trying to make anyone who comes in to their stores just, you know, you just bang a sandwich, you're just getting a coffee, it's fine if that's a fairly mm-hmm. transactional thing. Um, but they, you're, supposed to, they're supposed to ask you about your weekend, make you feel good, make you go away. This new thing that's come out that they, they can give you a free coffee depending on how they feel, mm-hmm. how they've judged your friendliness or your, even your sadness, I guess, and they're trying to cheer you up with a coffee. So there's all these things that sort of, as the jobs that are making things or disappearing could be taken over by the robots mm-hmm. and machines, that the jobs that are left to have to have more have to be these sort of jobs that we love and jobs that we you know, use our emotions for, not just our, you know, our hands and strength. 
behaviours, prep behaviours, that yeah. they're called in that way, which no doubt sounded fine to whoever came up with that idea of prep, but it just sounds so sinister to me. No, no, it does. It, and it's sort of robotic. Like, there was a great bit where I spoke to one of the baristas and he would say he, he found it really hard. He'd come from the Czech Republic where mm-hmm. you don't, didn't have that kind of chit-chat, sort of American-style chit-chat at each transaction. And he'd say he would watch a colleague who was just naturally sunny, could do it, and she would say, you know, why don't you just say, you know, have a nice weekend? And so he'd say, OK, no, have a nice weekend. And obviously Monday you say it, Tuesday you say it, Wednesday, gets to Thursday... <laughs> The prime weekend's very far away at that point, and he was still saying he just didn't quite know how to kind of do that. And why should he? You know, that's not all one brings to a job. You start the book off in a charity shop Mm. in Dover, which Mm. is your hometown. Those people are, they're not even working for money. No, exactly. And one of the things I was thinking about entirely, well, throughout the two years of writing the book, I often thought about what work what was the motivations for work. Mm-hmm. So lots of people told me they wouldn't work for money. Lots of people wanted to feel that what they did all day contributed to the world in some way, some small way, so making one person's life better or you know, making their children's life better or just little things like that. They wouldn't feel that they... Because work is more than that, isn't it? It isn't mm. just what we earn. It's how we th- it is how we think about ourselves. It is how we want to account for our lives on our deathbed slightly. What, what did we do? What did we make? What did we contribute to the world? But also it demonstrates, again, that idea that, I mean, there are certain things that, things that we'll definitely touch on in this interview that it's debatable whether they're classed as work um, or people want to categorise them as work and other people don't. And then you get this sort of situation where people are doing something which is definitely work, turning up, working for somebody else for a set hours, a set amount of hours a day. But that key element that is the reason why we all work is the one thing that's missing. Money, you mean? Yeah. And you think we always work for money? Well, I mean, that seems to be the, the, the reason why people have to work. I yeah. mean, certainly if we can be in the position where we can work out of love because we have the leisure time to do so or the ability to do so. But it seems odd to be working for... Well, first of all, let me try and rephrase this. Not just working... Because obviously a lot of the people there are volunteering, which is a different thing. I mean, it's obviously work, but they're volunteering. But also, there were people working there that didn't want to be necessarily working there, but were being sort of punitively... Oh, so work there. Yes. Yeah, 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 well, I think um, one of the things about starting with that situation is you're taking away the money completely. So you're mm. seeing people who come just to hang out with friends, yeah. literally come out and hang out with friends and um, make cups of tea and um, share bags of sweets and chat. People who feel that like they get more out of that than their normal paid wage job, mm-hmm. that they feel like they're doing something, contributing to something, a charity. And then people who, yeah, have to be there because um, you know, they've got a speeding fine, they've got mm-hmm. community service, or they've, they've gone the government's welfare programme. That seemed to me quite stark, and some of the mm-hmm. things that were sort of happening to the world at work, that on some level you have these people loving it, some people who see it have these wonderful kind of experiences at work, you know, they're kind of Google and people going on bouncy chairs and ripsticks and all that exciting stuff. And on the other end you've got people who are just being forced into doing things that don't seem to have any value for them in particular, but mm-hmm. also perhaps society I mean the end of the, the last chapter of the book is another person like, what another person needed to work there and he was just spending time breaking up furniture mm-hmm. and that doesn't seem like I mean what how can you use that generally for the next you know say to your employer I spent six weeks breaking up furniture and that's going to get you a job it's yeah. not going to get any unless there's another breaking up furniture place. I mean it's like breaking up stones in you know Robin Island I mean it's just so anyway I want to before we get into going through some of the the book is broken up into chapters that look at various different, I guess, themes of of work, shall we say. And before we do that, I want to take a couple of examples from there, but at the sort of the bottom and the top end of the spectrum. Um, And there's a company director that you talk to. It's a woman and she's had a, a, a very interesting career and seems like quite atypical even for the very small group the the very particularly tiny group of company directors that there are but I wonder I mean to what extent the people at that end know understand and can recognize what the world of work is like for people right at the far end well one thing they both have in common is just this extreme hours they both work actually weirdly that you think of someone working three jobs Mm. would have the same experience as um someone right at the top who 
who has to have her breakfast put underneath her nose before she'll eat it. That's the one thing that she, she would say. She gets up early, gets in before her PA, like, mm-hmm. and spends most of her evenings, weekday evenings, that is, either on functions that kind of... And also, you know, like, talking about emotional labour, we talked about prep, but also she has to show up to these yeah. kind of um, dinners, which I imagine aren't always that thrilling, mm-hmm. even if, you know, they're catered and champagne and all that. But, and maybe she doesn't want to be, maybe she wants to be with her husband and her mm-hmm. children, who she would talk to a lot about in the interview. So there is those sort of things too. So there is a kind of, there's six times of truth, you know, the top and the bottom mm. kind of um, uh, have a lot in common. But yeah, I, I don't, I'm not sure that she would really know what it's like to live a normal life, no. She understood that she had employees, but I don't think she would necessarily know exactly what their lives were like. Mm-hmm. She might dispute that if she was here, but I didn't get the sense personally that she, she really knew what it was like. Let's go right back down to, um, well, I don't even want to talk about work, I want to talk about unemployment, I guess. So what is what is the situation currently in terms of, you know, we talked about workfare briefly, how difficult is it for people that are out of work to basically get back into the world of work? The peculiar thing about being unemployed at the moment is the way that it's, well, it, first thing to say is that you don't get very much money at all, yeah. £70 a week, um, which is nothing. But the second thing is the way the um, kind of regime is um, imagined is that you have to, so the first week you have to apply for, prove you've applied for one job or two jobs on this, and it gradually goes up week by week mm-hmm. by week, and you have to apply for jobs that you know you don't want or can't mm-hmm. get, but you have to prove that you've applied for so many jobs mm-hmm. before you can get your money. Um, you have to apply for this computer, this universal job matching computer doesn't always work, picks up the wrong things for you. It doesn't really matter what you want to do. And I think, I don't know the figures off the top of my head, but there is a sense that people are, people don't really get jobs in the job centre anymore. It's mm-hmm. not like, you know, the 1950s Oak Exchange, you'd go there and say, I'm a, uh, I'm a welder, what else have you got? Mm-hmm. I've just been put out of work, what else have you got? And you get a job at the end of the week. It's just not like that. I mean, it is a it is a bad situation, and all the responsibility seems to be on the person trying to find work. Mm-hmm. There's no sense that there might not be enough jobs, that we might not have the right skills, that that we might be in a recession. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, all those things don't seem to be acknowledged by the government, and certainly not by the job centre. And also, that the emphasis on having to find any job, mm-hmm. you need to be in work, you need to find a job. Also, prevents it seems to prevent people from being able to pursue the job that they would want. Right. Yeah, and that's exactly the case with um, Kate Riley, that famous mm-hmm. uh, workfare case. That she, so just young, graduated from university, had a uh, part-time position in a museum, I think, and was told by the job centre that she couldn't do that. She had to go to Panama to stack mm-hmm. shelves, and you know she was vilified for um, complaining and saying, "Why, why do I have to do this thing to keep benefits, which should be that should be part of being a citizen of the UK in 2015?" Mm-hmm. And the thing I actually want to do, the thing that I um, will get me skills, will hopefully leave for a better job in the future I'm not allowed to do. So it's exactly that problem. Like, do we want to... It's just a bit of this rhetoric, you know, hard-working families, hard-working, mm-hmm. feeling like you, work is the only thing that matters to be a citizen, and I, I think that, that seems depressing, doesn't it? And the, the workfare, I mean, we talked briefly about it, this idea of, you know, for somebody working in a charity shop, which... The, you know, the vast majority of the staff there are, are volunteering, but when you talk about somebody being on work, they're working in Poundland, a business that should be employing people and paying for them, yes. then yeah, it becomes even more problematic. Yeah, of course. Um, and so many, the brilliant campaigns like Boycott Workfare mm-hmm. shamed and named so many of these companies, including the charities, and got them to stop doing it, mm-hmm. which... Is um, is wonderful. Yeah, I mean, it did. It really had an effect. Yeah, 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 and continue to and and just one other thing then at the at the, um, at the getting into work level actually more more than not being able to find work. But I just wanted to spend some time talking about internships yeah. and obviously again it's a sort of course that I have at the moment the free you know working for free for six months to get into the jobs that everybody wants to do, mm. which of course means that they're only available to a, a, a tiny percent of the people who could potentially do those jobs. Yeah, and young people are angry about that, and mm. I understand why. It shouldn't be like that. I spent some time with um, future interns who are a really fun and creative. They're based at an art school, and they, they spend their time doing targeting kind of arts organisations. Exactly these kind of like... Mm-hmm these places with an aura where any girl would want, any girl or boy would want a man or woman, I should say. 
would want to work. So mm-hmm. this, at the Serpentine, they went dressed up as Santas and said, all I want for Christmas is pay on a huge <laughs> banner and handed out, handed out kind of scrolls to everybody. And I went on with them on a, um, a, an action at the Barbican where um, they all put on masks of like Bach and um, Wagner and um, asked the people who were coming to see the LSO to accept, you know, take this scroll, which explained about um, a particular... I mean, this, this... I mean, I remember... When I opened it myself, I was quite shocked. It's a huge kind of advert for an intern. It wasn't just to be like an intern if you'd like to apply, mm. but it's you know, all these qualities you're supposed to have, all these duties you're supposed to have, and at the end it says, oh, well, you won't get some free tickets. And for six months with no pay. And just, that's not, there's not, uh, any of us want to live in. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly they don't. And I just, the brilliant thing about them is that each time they do one of these things, it's so creative, it's so high profile that actually they, come, they back down. So the Serpentine back down, they now pay interns, so do, so do the LSO, the London Symphony Orchestra, which is quite right too. Listening to Little Atoms, I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Joanna Biggs and we're talking about her book All Day Long, A Portrait of Britain at Work. And so Joanna, let's look at some of the Britons at work really in the, in the second in the second part, actually. They're not all Britons, but then there you go. Manufacturing, that's one of those areas that I sort of mentioned has changed beyond all recognition. And a couple of the people that you talk to, it, it, it's interesting because they're the I, I wanna know about the choices really, because they're there is still the traditional manufacturing, right? even though it's like massively reduced. You talk to a shoemaker, a specialist ballet shoemaking company, and um, potters at Emma Bridgewater Pottery, which is like sort of you know posh pottery. Both of those things are quite they're quite they're, you know they're obviously ancient crafts, but also it's quite a niche thing now. Both of those things was that a deliberate choice? I think that's where it, I think that's where it's going. Manufacturing. Mm. I think um, quite a lot of mass-produced things have moved all the way to China. Mm-hmm. We didn't even. I couldn't even watch how certain things are made. I don't think in this country. The third example you haven't said, which maybe we'll be coming onto a bit later, is um, I went to a car factory and looked at the way mm-hmm. robots put cars together. And obviously, that was something that used to be heavily unionised, a huge employer, yeah. and doesn't really exist anymore. Um, Indeed, your third, your example was the robot. Yeah, as the worker, yeah. he was the worker. Yeah, which I think that that is how that's yeah. the way it's going. Um, and these niche things, yeah, I think that's that's obviously how Germany has um, <laughs> become so wealthy. They're so good at this thing called the Mittelstand, where they mm. make, some make excellent glass eyes or um, brilliant kind of crutches. These things that every people need to be good quality. They need mm-hmm. they do need constant supply of, but they don't need. You know, and they can people can afford to spend more money on them because they are so specialist. So I think that this is just um, one of the ways that our manufacturing has changed um, in the West, certainly. And what was this? You know, where was everybody supposed to work? I mean, talking about this country in particular, as you said, you know, somewhere like Germany, there's still a huge, proper industrial manufacturing base in the country, which we have gotten rid of over the last twenty or thirty years. And what was everybody supposed to do? Well, what was this? What was the new, the idea that everybody would be working in? Because again, it wasn't going to be nobody's going to be working. Robots are going to do it, or we'll all be working three hours a uh, three hours a day in Keynes of estimation. But this is. Like- the crisis of capitalism or the failure of our governments to sort of understand what's been happening to the world of work and why why don't we follow Keynes and try and share it out a bit more equally why is the CEO working so many hours she could share her job why is the woman at the bottom not even getting you know cleaner having to have three jobs and not even getting London living wage or whatever or the UK living wage Um, people don't talk about that as much but that is also an important thing I mean I Everything is organised badly, <laughs> basically. And where are the jobs? I completely agree. I don't think there's any vision from any of our political parties about where jobs are supposed to come from and where we're supposed to go with the economy. We march the makers from Osborne didn't really mean much. They should <laughs> say, let's be like Germany. It didn't really, doesn't really seem to me there's anything that is a, is a 
a vision of how it's supposed to work in the future. Mm. We need to get into the lucrative glass eye industry. That's what it is. But we can't because Germany are. But that's the thing. Like that's the problem with Germany and Greece. Mm-hmm. Like Germany think Greece should be like them. That's not possible. Not everyone can be Germany. You interviewed a Bulgarian, as it happens, sex worker. Two things about it. First, sex work is something that is striving for legitimacy, to be recognised, well, legitimacy in two ways, to be recognised as actual work, you know, for people to say it is a job, but also it's illegal, so it's, you know, in various different permutations. The the legalities are quite an interesting question because it's not actually paying for sex that's illegal, Mm -hmm. it's all the activities around it, so soliciting and advertising, so all those things. So it's... it's an interesting legal situation. Yeah, but there is a legal situation. Yeah, is, yeah. Is, is, is what I was trying to say. So it's not like that there is that situation which also prevents it from being like a job where one pays taxes and, and so on and yeah. so forth, yeah. and national yeah. insurance. And again, that's an interesting thing because it's, I mean, you, you talk to a, a stay at home mum, I was going to say a housewife, that's a little, <laughs> bit, a little bit of an old fashioned description. Again, I mean, it strikes me that, you know, people have fought for years to say, that housework is work and it should therefore be recognised as work and perhaps compensated for in a similar way. And so it seems odd that there is this sort of ongoing discussion about sex work. Well, I think um, one thing that the English Collection of Prostitutes, who, she, mm. the person that I speak to is a member of the English Collection of Prostitutes, who've been going since about 60s, 70s, um, is arguing for is the legalisation of it. Mm-hmm. So we, they would have this um, legitimate thing. They would be able to call the police if they had problems, as opposed to now where they obviously can't do that. Mm-hmm. They have to have um, look out for each other and have a maid who knows what's going on. And um, they also have to skirt around the law in certain ways that makes sometimes makes their job more dangerous. Mm-hmm. And I think housewives too. They have. I think well, they come together in interesting ways. One of the things the ECP and the Wages for Housework movement, these are both 70s movements that grew up together, mm. um, both arguing that sex, sex work is legitimate work and arguing that housework is legitimate work. I mean, I mean they are, aren't they? Isn't a housewife some sort of sex worker in some way? <laughs> if you talk about marriage as kind of a legal contract, you just, one man sleeps with one woman, she provides food and um, comfort and all these things. I mean, it's quite a cynical way of seeing relationships, perhaps, and mm-hmm. love, where does love come into this? But the idea that um, that women's work has never been entirely understood as work before, and you have to fight and say, no, no, it is work when you have sex when you don't want to. It is work whether you're a housewife or you're a sex worker. Mm-hmm. It is work when you smile and make a man feel better when you perhaps don't feel better yourself. All that stuff is work, but work that's not recognised in the wage system. There was only a couple of people that you interviewed in this book that wanted to be paid to talk mm. to you. The sex worker being one of them, which mm-hmm. seems entirely reasonable. And but did it seem reasonable to you? Yeah. But it seemed reasonable to me because yeah. I thought it was saying... Well, you were basically taking up a block of her time and that yeah. is what she charges for, ultimately. Whatever she is she was doing, she is basically somebody is giving her some money to spend a period of time with her to do whatever. Why I liked that she asked me and why I paid her and why I thought it was okay was because I thought she made... I think it is work talking to somebody. I think mm. it is work to um, try and to reveal things about your life and think about them. You know, two hours... You, I was exhausted after some of these interviews and I bet they were too. Mm. So what I liked about it is it made visible a work that doesn't seem like work, which yeah. is the point I was trying to make with kind of house, you know, with stay-at-home mothers and mm-hmm. with um, other people who don't earn money through their work. So I, I like that, that. I like that she asked me, but I can see that... Um, other people might not think that that was the right, you know. Well, the other person, the other person right at the far end of the spectrum that asked to be paid, or oh, I don't even know if it was that per- the actual person you ended up interviewing that asked to be paid, was it? Or was no, it no, just no, the... no, 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 it's someone yeah. else I approached. I, okay. I couldn't have afforded the fee no. suggested. <laughs> yeah, so the other person that, was, that you didn't end up interviewing then who did ask to be paid was a professional footballer Mm. and we do interview a different professional footballer who we should say didn't ask to be paid (laughs) it's probably an important thing to say which I don't know you know without making some sort of glib connection between sex workers and footballers (laughs) seems like also not surprising in some sort of way the mercenary way that the game has gone in, in this sort of way it seems like not even necessarily that 
that, that particular footballer was particularly venal or something. It's just that again, the game has gone in the direction, or professional sports has gone in that direction, where everything involved in it has a, a you know a dollar value. Everybody wants to be paid for everything, and everybody's taking a cut out of it. So again, it seems like not surprising. Another thing that's interesting is that they both knew their market values. So, yeah. Um, the sex worker asked for fifty pounds for a half hour, which is how much you would charge yeah. a client for. Um, I think for full sex, pretty much. And um, so that's saying, this is is how much I know my Mm -hmm. time costs. And he asked for £5,000 for for just an interview. And I think it's both them saying, we know that we are in a market, how much we know. And that somebody else would pay it. Yeah, someone else would pay it. And also that it's a short, both of those are short careers. You can't be, I mean, perhaps you can be separate, but you, you can't be a footballer forever. And, you know, there's a kind of melancholy recognition that's when I talk to the sex worker that she knows that on her first day she earned a huge amount of money because she was new, she was a novelty and as, mm. as time has gone on that's reduced and so there will become a point where it's not worth her time mm-hmm. and she's, the moment she's 19 I think or 21, she's going to know that after. 21, she 21. Was. at the moment she's 21 and she knows that as time goes on she won't be able to earn as much money so there's a sort of recognition that there's a limited time in which I can ask this, so I'm going to ask it, you know. And that's, that's okay, I think, maybe. There's a section of the book entitled Thinking. You interview a scientist, and also um, Marina Warner, professor. And I really wanted to talk in, not about them in particular, but just about... You illustrate through both of those chapters, I think, the sort of changing face of academia, how things are, you know, where things are going. And I wanted to talk about that, and I guess... Those are places where the next generation of workers are going to come from. And universities are becoming more and more a place to, to incubate the next generation of workers rather than the next generation of thinkers. Yeah, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to Marina Warner is because she has made um, vital contributions to this mm. um, discussion that we're having about our universities and what they're for. And um, she left the University of Essex because they tightened the way that she, her kind of work remit to such a degree that it wasn't possible for her to do things that, you know, the things that she needs to do as a mm. writer and thinker to be able to do, to write the books that she's written. You know, she's just won the Holberg Prize, a yeah. huge amount of money. I mean, she's the chair of the Man Book International. She's one of our, she's a really important thinker for generations of um, students. And for me, myself, I really admire her work. But she was trying to say that these things, in tightening it so much for the for the students and for the teachers, you're creating a sort of transactional and kind of small-minded view of what what the intellectual life is like and also what, what work is like, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, In the section, there's a section on caring, care workers and cleaners, mm-hmm. both of whom do... I mean, again, these are jobs that I think when people talk about the end of work, the idea that nobody will have to work... And these are jobs that are never going away. Right? We need people to to look after other people. Yeah. These are both jobs that are incredibly undervalued by society, badly paid, most likely to be on zero-hour contracts and stuff. And, again, this is not... It just seems that gets worse for the people in that situation rather than better. Why are, these, why are they so undervalued? I don't understand that, to be honest, either, really. Um, I guess because it's traditionally women's work, mm-hmm. women's work hasn't been paid and it's been undervalued. I think, well, the story, for example, for home care workers is to do with the failure post-1945 to set up a sort of NHS for care work, which yeah. periodically we talk about, periodically we realise isn't possible, mm-hmm. I don't, which is depressing in itself. Mm-hmm. Why can't we do this sort of thing in a rich society, in a peaceful, peaceful Europe for over very many years? And so it's always been parceled out in kind of between charities and, and mm-hmm. local authorities. And you know, in local authorities, they like to call up a tender, and then obviously the person with the lowest who has the lowest fee wins. And then it's the, you know, they rely on people with amazing hearts and time and to pick up the pieces when these things don't go right. And that's generally what happens. Um, the person I spoke to was Charmonte. She's now sort of become a campaigner for. Um, better um, against zero hours contracts, against things like not getting paid for the um, travel time between mm-hmm. appointments um, and she's she has had a huge effect, she's angry and eloquent and um, and she's lived it, she lives it every day, she still works as a care worker 
and she's sort of a heroine, <laughs> you know? Like, she cried telling me about some of her people that she worked worked for and become friends with. She's the person who gets as angry as a um, family member when someone with dementia is just mm-hmm. left, you know, left without food, left um, in his own kind of excrement because no one has been there to help him get to the toilet and help him get ready in the morning. I mean, she's she's amazing and I don't understand why it's not undervalued. I couldn't do it. Just to finish off, you, you end up at the end of the book going back to your old junior school briefly. So I just wanted to talk about what What's the future of work going to be like? Big question, perhaps. What's the future of work going to be like for those children? What's it going to be like when they eventually out there looking for looking for work? I don't really believe in predicting the future, but I did read a couple of um, jobs reports which had very depressing, kind of very depressing job descriptions, like um, climate change specialist. Mm-hmm. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There's a couple of them in the book. but And I thought the world is going to be... It's going to read it as a dystopian nightmare. And the children I spoke to were so charming. They wanted to, they wanted to be vets, or they wanted to be a dancer. They wanted to be mm-hmm. so many of them wanted to be footballers, or they wanted to be a teacher. Or they they had these. They saw it was like I really like animals, so I want to be with animals all day, every day. Yeah. I really like my friends, so I want to be with my friends playing football all day, every day. I really like drawing, so I just want to draw all day. And there's something rather wonderful about that optimism. And then when it contrasts with this idea that the planet will be warmed by six degrees and it will be unrecognisable and um, inequality will have worsened to a depressing point and... The, the global warming specialist, that's, you know, that's quite a specialised job. I think most people are going to be employed in building seawalls and dikes. <laughs> oh, There'd be great engineering programmes to, be a, to, to employ everybody in. It'd be like the New Deal. I just felt that there's just a certain lack of imagination about what how jobs might be. That there was, as unions of the membership of unions has declined, there's a lack of resistance to how work is organised now, and just ideas like universal basic income, this idea that every citizen, no matter what they did, might mm-hmm. get an allowance from the state that would free them up to work in a Keynesian way of three hours a week, or um, to pursue hobbies, or for women to have spend more time when they have children or people just to, you know, learn other languages or, you know, there'd be a space between school and work that helped people understand what they wanted to do. The idea that that was proposed by the Green Party but then withdrawn and so it wasn't even talked about the election and um, there's just a lack of imagination about how we would organise society better, I feel. But I hope there are glimmers and I hope that they continue. That's a good point for us to finish then. So I've been talking to Joanna Biggs. We've been talking about her book, All Day Long, A Portrait of Britain at Work. So Joanna, thank you for coming in and telling me about it. No, no, thank you so much.
I'm Jeff Dyer. You're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. Stefan Olcock is a writer, linguist and translator. Born and brought up in Yorkshire, he lived in Berlin for several years before moving to London, where he graduated with an honours BA in German language and literature from Goldsmiths College. In 2013, he was awarded an MA in contemporary prose fiction by Kingston University. And today we're going to be talking about his debut novel, which is Blood Relatives, which was published by Fourth Estate in March of this year. So, Stefan, thank you very much for joining sure, me today. You're welcome, Neil. Tell us what the story of Blood Relatives is, first of all. Um, if I was to do an elevator pitch, it's, yes. it's a gay coming-of-age novel set against the era of the Yorkshire Ripper murders. But of course it's a lot more than that. Yes, so let's expand a little bit more. Well, Without it, giving it oh, away. Yes, we're not going to spoil it. It works on, on, I hope, on, on many different levels. But it, I was exploring the relationship between uh, an emerging gay sexuality and family mm-hmm. um, I also was right have written a book in which a gay working class uh, man is the or young man is the uh, narrator mm-hmm. and the protagonist um, uh, and a young man who's um, somewhat at ease with his sexuality mm-hmm. so I wanted to break away from what I saw as um, there are there are gay uh, novels in which a gay man is, is the uh, gay working class man is the central character mm-hmm. and the protagonist, but it seemed to me that um, there was a great untold story of growing up gay in the north as a working class young man. To set it as I did against the background of the River Murders, I suppose we'll come to why I did that. Yeah, it, it, that, that, that's what I, the era that I set it in. And that particular, I mean, the, the fact that it's in the north, I mean, you said a lot of gay fiction about a certain period of time. We're talking about a period where, well, a lot of the men that Ricky, the main character in the book, yeah. is meeting to have sex with are from an older generation who lived in a different, you know, in a, in a completely different legal world. Yeah. And it's also, the novel is set between 1975 and 1980. Yes. So really, in a, in a short period before... AIDS and before everything changes in that respect. It's a real upheaval period. Mm-hmm. It's a transition period. It's the period between gay liberation's emergence mm-hmm. um, post sixty seven, uh, and and as you say, the the era it, it concludes <laughs> a little too neatly, might I say? Well, <laughs> the, 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 the river was captured just before the uh, the AIDS epidemic mm-hmm. in the following decade. So yes, absolutely. And then, as I said, it's the, it's the north. Whereas we would normally expect, as you mentioned, this sort of thing to be set in, you know, in sort of swinging Zoho or something. Yes. Um, well, let's just take a step back first of all. You grew up. You're also, you know, you're from that area and that era, yes. if I may say yes. so. Yes. So um, let's talk about what that atmosphere was like in a you know a northern provincial town. When you're growing up in somewhere. At that age and growing up, you don't. Everything's new, and you and you haven't got things to compare it. Yeah, against. I guess it's the only place you know. And the only place so, you know, more yeah. or less. Uh, and everything feels actually feels really great. Mm. You 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 finding out who you are. You're pushing forwards in life, and 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 you don't know where life is going, but you you know there were there were new boundaries, new things to explore. So, personally speaking, it was. Um, it was a it was a good time. So I mean that that in itself is reasoning enough to you set it in that particular period of time, like you said, yeah. that particular period of upheaval. Yes. Just so happens, and also at that at that time, the uh, the Yorkshire Ripper is is uh, is you know on the scene. So let's talk about. Well, I guess I mean he's a he's a famous person, but let's give us a recap of who he was and what that time was like because I think it's it's difficult for people who weren't around at that time to know first of all the fear that he cast upon a place, but also I think I mean we'll talk a bit more about this later on when we um, Ricky uh, you know as part of a sort of persecuted subculture is also close in the book to another persecuted culture yeah. the sex worker yes. Um, who at this period of time, while the ripple was cutting swathes through them, were basically just, it didn't matter, you know what I mean? They were just disregarded. Yes, absolutely. I mean, the, um, uh, until uh, the murder of Jane McDonald, mm-hmm. it was they've got what's coming to them attitude. 
and also um, it's happening. You know, it's happening to prostitutes. Therefore, mm-hmm. women who were not prostitutes were, it, it, it was, you know, in the papers, but it wasn't really anything to do with us. Mm-hmm. So, so up to that point, I would say that even the first cup, two or three, it was. It, the police might have known by number three that they had a serial killer on their hands, but I, I think just something that came and went in the papers. Mm-hmm. So it was something that grew, and that was something I had to bring across in the book. Mm. That, that that was that that fog, that miasma, which is almost gothic, just creeps across mm-hmm. s- the society at the time. And in in the mid to the later years of his murders, it was. Um, it, it became something that affected um, everybody. Yeah, you asked me, I've, I've gone ahead of myself a bit here, basically for people who were not aware. I, th- I think he had um, eight, up to 18 um, victims, mm-hmm. including people, women who survived his attacks. Uh, not all of those feature in the book for a very good reason, and that is that some of them only came apparent after he was confessed, mm-hmm. and therefore yeah. Rick, the protagonist, Ricky, would not have been aware yeah. of that. Um, and some of them were not initially attributed to him, so I kept with the ones that were. Uh, yeah, his name was Peter Sutcliffe. He, the press gave him the name of the Yorkshire Ripper, and he operated around. I believe he did one attack in Manchester, but the rest of them were in, in <laughs> Yorkshire. So parallel to that narrative is the story of Ricky and his, mm. you know, coming of age. Tell us what gay life in Leeds like in the late 1970s. <laughs> um, it, it was a kind of... It was a world beneath the surface of mm-hmm. everything that was around. Uh, this, this secret and exciting world, at least that's what I felt it was like. Um, it was obviously, therefore, because it was relatively hidden, quite, you know, oppressed... But at the same time, this is this is the you said there's this unique position in time where you know politically the gay liberation movement well, gay liberation is starting to get going. Yes, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, and I used to go to gay liberation front meetings, and and, uh, and there were you know there's, there's a club, Charlie's Club is mentioned. Mm-hmm. And I, I left Leeds in the late seventies, so I don't quite know when it, it closed down, but it did at some point or other. And I think the new penny, which is in the book, is still there. Um, but the other Leeds clubs that emerged mm-hmm. in the 80s, that hadn't yet emerged. So there wasn't, there was, there was what there was, like um, a monthly disco in the Guildford Hotel on the head row um, in Leeds was organised by Gay Liberation Front um, and, and there was CHE campaign for homosexual equality as mm-hmm. well. So you kind of lean towards going towards those kind of things. And there was a couple of pubs and that was your lot. Mm-hmm. And, and, I can remember when this the, that club, the Gemini in Huddersfield, which is long gone. Mm-hmm. I, I've mentioned that to a few people and a few other gay men from Nottingham. Oh, I don't remember that. That was fantastic place because it it was unlike anything else that we'd had before. And this is again also featured in the book, but this is also the era of the National Front as yeah, well. The National Front as well. Um, and so, I mean, you know, there's there's racism. There's there's that sort of you know, common veneer of racism in the book as well. But, I mean, also those worlds cross over as well, right? The National Front were not... Yes, I did, I did, tolerant I, of... I, I did that, yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and um, <laughs> I didn't want to have a character in Rick who was going to be, um, you know, one of those struggling to come to terms with his sexuality, mm-hmm. ultra-PC, dreadful protagonist. I wanted mm-hmm. him to have shade and light and try yeah, to find yeah, his way does. and make mistakes and fall in love with the wrong people mm-hmm. and... and and then, of course, you have Tad, who's, um, who he does sort of get obsessed with mm. um, in that kind of teenage way. And, 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 and Tad, too, has his, has his issues and problems. And, and he, gets mixed up, he gets mixed up with the National Front for a while. It's the look. They have a good look. <laughs> it's the look, yeah. It's the look well, I, I, I toy with that. You know, there's, there's, there's this... I, I, I sort of... Um, and of course, what happened, it's interesting because if you read *Children of the Sun* by Max mm. Schaefer, which it looks at a piece of fiction, but it looks at set in the era of, of the gay skinhead movement, mm-hmm. it looks at, at, at that. And and it was interesting. I read that after I'd written my thing, my mm-hmm. part of, uh, of uh, *Tad* and so forth, and the, and the National Front in Leeds and Leeds Bradford. And I just 
Um, it was interesting how much crossover there was. Um, there's a, what is the word I'm looking for? There's a kind of, um, uh, yeah, there's a, unfortunately a little sort of bit of, you know, adoration of that kind of mm-hmm. look that goes on amongst gay men. Let's talk about the characters a bit more and tell us more about Ricky. So we've sort of described, you know, he's a, he's a working class young gay man, but yeah. tell us a bit more about what he is, what he does. Yes, I mean, he works on, his job is working for the Corona soft drinks wagons, which um, older people will never remember. I remember them. You remember them? Yeah. yeah. It was Corona and Alpine. It was a couple yeah, of we used to have Alpine in Leicester. Right. And they, they, <laughs> delivered, they delivered door to door, and, and that was an easy, I, I did that job. So that was uh, not as long as he did in the book, but mm-hmm. I did it for a couple of summers and, and weekends for two or three years. And, and so it made sense to give him that job because I could, te- I, could, I could show so much about the landscape. It allowed me to move him around anywhere that I wanted. It was the perfect job for the, yeah. for, for the protagonist. Mm-hmm. It's a very, I mean, obviously that thing doesn't really exist anymore, but it's also a very sort of 70s job. It is, that sort of it? confessions of a window cleaner type way. It sort of, it gives well, untold... It's be on that level. No, yeah. but I mean, you know, it, it sort of, you know, it gives untold opportunities for doorstop. Oh, yeah, 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 for that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. All right, yeah. <laughs> it does, for doorstop. I mean, I suppose Eric is, is the closest representative mm-hmm. to the window cleaning yeah. thing you're ever referring to. Um, but, it, yeah, but it also, you see... I don't want to go... Inevitably, there are parts of, of my life that are in the book. Mm-hmm. Inevitably. Um, but, and, and the thing about sitting with prostitutes and, and having tea and mm-hmm. hearing them talking about business, and, and I mean, that, that really happened. Mm-hmm. But um, not, in, not in the way that I present sure. it in the book, um, because I, need, it, and I needed to create a narrative. Mm-hmm. We really just sat and drank of tea and they talked about he had a coronation street or something rather than anything or whatever mm-hmm. I put in um, but certainly that that just meant that that I was there when when you know when the first prostitutes were talking about the first Ripper murders so I did mm-hmm. get to hear that as a, a very young lad um, much earlier than a lot of other people would and mm-hmm. that stayed with me and I when I was writing the book I thought I can really use this and, and the way that it then brought the world of the sex workers and, the world and, and mm-hmm. his world and what he is together. And so you've got these, that li- their life and then his life and then the family life and then uh, and, and how that, that initially seems to be like over here, over there, over there and then mm-hmm. gradually it's pulled together into, mm-hmm. into one narrative by the presence of the Yorkshire Ripper. I'm Caitlin Doty. Check out the growing Little Adams media empire at littleadams.com. to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Stefan Olcock and we're talking about his book Blood Relatives. And Stefan, I want to talk a little bit about the writing of the book mm. now. It's your first novel. Yeah. You've written it in, it's basically in a sort of Yorkshire idiom. Yes. Um, so let's talk about why you decided to do that and then we can talk about what that was like. How, I want to talk about the sort of technical side of writing a book in that way as well but why did you decide to do that first of all well I, I wrote I wrote the book in the third person without any idiom mm-hmm. first, first time round, and it felt flat and then I decided to rewrite the whole thing in the first person mm-hmm. um, and Therefore, I, I, I was giving it a voice, a, a much stronger voice, and then I started just playing with the idea of putting it in certain, <laughs> uh, putting certain Yorkshire idioms in there. 
Who was this still in third person as well before you? No, no. okay. No, so it was only when you also the made it to the yeah. Then I started yeah. using the Yorkshire idiom. Okay, which means it, it, it is all going to be rather than just dialogue. Yes, yes, exactly. That meant I was I was you know, and I really um, undenied about that. Mm-hmm. And then having decided to do it, the question was how far and what. Mm-hmm. And so I made certain decisions about about the the words that I would use. Um, uh, so, you know, he uses war and it's himsen and other um, words, kailai and ginnol and other things which are familiar to Yorkshire people. And, um, uh, and then there was the issue of the guttural T and, mm-hmm. and whether to use that all the time and then it didn't feel right. So, I used it, I set myself certain rules mm-hmm. um, and out and out and all that kind of thing. And I, I just, I set myself certain rules and I stuck to them. And then only when I'd done that did I look at what other writers had done. Mm-hmm. And I was quite surprised. It, it, I then sort of felt, oh my God, I've gone too far. Um, so, but I, I ran a few early drafts. Uh, through past people who were not from Yorkshire, mm-hmm. and they went, "Oh yeah, we're fine with it." Just yeah. Just, yeah, and so um, that's how it ended up being. And it just felt alive. It felt much mm. stronger. It felt more colourful. And with and, and but the then thing, then I had to be careful that I wasn't falling into some awful cliche. But how how else did it change as well? I mean, if you'd already written the entire book, and then to put it first of all into the first person, but also into this idiom as well, in that second writing process, did it change other aspects? Of well, the book it did. as well. It, it, in fact, I, I would not recommend it doing it this way. But it actually served <laughs> me really well. Twice. Yes, <laughs> you write the whole book twice. I mean, I was two thirds of the way through it when I made this decision. Um, <laughs> In the third person, of course, there were things that happened which he, yeah. which he was not present Sure. In. So you had to then decide what you were going to keep and then restructure mm-hmm. it. So it, it actually served it very well because then I knew what was happening, if you like, off stage. Mm-hmm. And the, the question was, how much does he know and how, much, how am I going to bring that in? Yeah. So it actually made it a much more... Um, it made it a much better book because I, I was able to introduce conversational elements. There were things that, that he ex, he that filter through to him by other means. Yeah, and I knew sort of what was going on. I knew, I knew exactly what was going on, say, in his mm-hmm. mother's life. Mm-hmm. And it was a question of where to how to put that in and where to put it across. You know. Um, yes, and, and and also there were a lot of. Diary entries which I cut out. Mm-hmm. There was always he's, he was constantly dipping into his sister's diary and things, and I, 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 they were in the book and they just weren't working, mm-hmm. so I, 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 I cut them out. But I still wanted to hear, have that clandestine thing of yeah. reading her diary, that transgressive. Thing. It, it was it was a point of transgression, and, mm-hmm. and so so yeah. It, it, once I got a handle on it, it worked much better. You're obviously from that area in the first place, although you know, uh, years ago. Yeah. Um, how does one research getting the language correct in that sort of way? How do you how do you go no, about no, that? I didn't. I just went with my instinct. Uh-huh. Yeah. It, this is how it was. Mm. How I can how I, mean, I can do Yorkshire dialect. This yeah. is how it was spoken. This is how it was said. And, and I, I went with it. And, and um, when I was doing the MA, I actually wrote an essay. Yeah. The use of well, on an essay on um, dialect and how it was presented, and uh, and I was quite surprised actually uh, how far I'd gone. And, and if I looked at, at well, Kess is uh, Kestrel, the now Barry Hines novel is mm-hmm. written in the third person, so he steps in and out of it. Yeah, and uh, I, I, others I found like John Brain. It wasn't there wasn't any Yorkshire dialect at all. Mm-hmm. I struggled to find anything that went, you know. I looked at Ross Raisin and it was God's Own Country. Mm-hmm. He'd done some and even provided a little glossary. It was so I thought, oh, I've gone too far here. <laughs> <laughs> and in the end, people didn't, uh, readers didn't think so. I was going to say about the, the MA 
because I, I couldn't tell from the title to what extent there was um, cre- a creative writing element to it, or whether you were just you know studying contemporary prose fiction as it's described. So I wanted to talk about how that helped. I mean, how do you think doing that? Um, did, uh, two things. With the... I, I mean, I was writing before that. I mean, I've been writing for years and years. Uh, I was writing in a kind of splendid isolation, mm. um, together with my ex, who was also a figure, uh, now a published writer. And the two of us were writing while we were living together for about ten years, and um, and it, it we we didn't have any other context as to where we were, how good we were, um, and the other th- reason for doing the MA was was to open doors. Mm-hmm. I it was it, it and that that's exactly I achieved exactly that. It, it did what it did and. It made it a much better book because I had all the the professional writers who were my tutors and my fellow students feeding into giving me feedback on what I'd done and mm-hmm. what I was doing. So um, yes, it did. It made it a better book, and it it, it got me through to my agent, and then of course from the agent everything else was history. So um, I, I might it might still be sitting in a slush pile at the time. As you said at the beginning, it's unusual in that it's a coming of age story about a, a gay man in a northern town. Yeah. But the actual the setting and that era has become quite familiar to literature, to people like David Peace and stuff. Yeah. Um, and that whole, you know, the thematics of the, you know, the, the, the Red Riding trilogy of the sort of the, the Ripper, and then obviously a later era than this, but, you know, the Hillsborough, and now just this whole new Bradford fire thing mm. has just come out. I mean, right up to the present day with, like, the sort of, you know, Rotherham and the whole... The, that area seems ripe for these stories of police corruption and just general corruption. And, of course, you, it, the whole patron saint of that whole thing now... Pops up in pops up in this book, Jimmy Savile. At some he point. does. And, and there was a, one reviewer um, said, you know, oh, even rather unkindly, well, even Jimmy Savile has sort of been chewed into this or whatever. I can't remember what that really was. And um, uh, sort of the implication that now that Jimmy Savile affair had come out into the open, I'd stop that in. Mm. I'd already written that. Um, <laughs> so, it, it well, he was integral he, to all. He, 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 he was a you know he was a presence in Leeds. How could I not? Famous photograph him? of him shaking hands with Peter Sutcliffe as well. <laughs> <laughs> um, right, just one last question. Eh? It's yeah. to say in the blurb at this book that you're working on your next novel. So oh, tell us something about what's next. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so what's next? What's can, what can you tell us about it? Oh, I mean, not much. No, no, nothing at all. No, no, nothing at all. Okay. Um, no, because um, I, I, I've always I've always find it really difficult to talk about whatever you're working on. How far progressed is it? Well, it depends which draft you read. <laughs> how many? Okay. How um, many times are you going to write this one? <laughs> a, a lot less. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's hard to say how far I am. In I've written a considerable amount, and I've, I've, I wrote a, another novel before this one, which has never seen the light mm-hmm. of day, and, that, and quite a few short stories and things. So uh, there are things which I can use and mm-hmm. recycle. Um, it will not be a follow-up to this. No, I, I think I have to. I think I have to take a big risk and write something completely different. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's really all I can say. Well, this is—I mean, this one. This has been out since March now, so a couple of months. So now, being a published writer, having that first novel out there in the world, how does that change what comes next? Really, do you know what I mean? Does that does that change your perspective? Uh, well, it gives you difficult second albums <laughs> <laughs> um, for a while, and then and then you—it it does change your perspective. It gives you. Um, a validity to what you're doing. It gives yourself a validity. Mm-hmm. You're allowed to do it now. You're a novelist. You're a novelist. You're official. You know, you're, you're, um, and they can never, never take that one away. Uh, the mm. first blood relative. So, so it, 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 it does change everything. Um, whereas uh, before you become a published novelist, you think, what right have I to think along with half the planet that I am going to write um, a novel and it's, this is going to happen and that's going to happen mm-hmm. although 
that's disingenuous because I kind of got a sense that it was pretty good mm-hmm. but I didn't know how good and I still really kind of like you think it's that good you know if, if people do mm-hmm. and uh, it kind of I'm quite humbled by it to be honest um, so um, I certainly don't want to get ahead of myself or anything like that and just get on with doing the next book and that's what I concentrate on I've been talking to Stefan Alcock. We've been talking about his book, Blood Relatives, which is out now from 40 State. So, Stefan, thank you very much for taking the time to tell me about it. You're welcome. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. The show is supported by 89up and hosted by Positive Internet. You can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. You can find old interviews, new journalism and more on our relaunch website, littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.